As we continue in our study of the book of Isaiah, beginning at verse 1, we're going to read a few verses, verse down to verse 4, and then we're going to get right into our study this evening. Moreover, the Lord said to me, I, I think that's a pretty good uh, clear indication that uh, uh, what we were learning in chapter 7 is kind of continuing on. So it's, it's kind of a, a continuation then of, of what we began in chapter 7. Moreover, the Lord said to me, Take a large scroll and write on it with a man's pen concerning Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. And I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Jeberechiah. Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz. For before the child shall have knowledge to cry, My father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. Shall we pray? Father, we ask for your wisdom this evening as we come to your precious word. We pray that you will guide us through the power of your Holy Spirit to learn, Lord, the lessons that these verses will teach us tonight. And as we continue to seek to grasp understanding of prophetic issues and prophetic themes, that, uh, Lord, you will grant us that opportunity to see how all of these things tie in not only to its own time, but to our own time as well. And those issues that... Across all of the generations in all of time that are not only for then but for now may they also be lessons to us we ask these things tonight Lord in, in Jesus precious name Amen some of you may remember a few years ago a song by Johnny Cash called a boy named Sue. I'm not going to go through the whole song, or I'm not going to go through the song at all, to be honest with you. But it comes to mind when I think of all these names that are given to kids in the Bible, especially those that are given to teach lessons. And I'm sure that it was an easier song to write, a boy named Sue, than a boy named Maher Shalal Hashbaz. That's a mouthful. I took quite a few minutes to practice that today. But this prophecy that we're given here in chapter 8 continues actually from chapter 7, and that is where the Lord assured Ahaz, king of Judah, that he would not be overthrown by the combined forces of Syria and the northern kingdom of Israel. All in all, God was trying to encourage Ahaz to trust him. This is something we looked at last, last week. But Ahaz was not a good king. 
He was far from the Lord. And though given many opportunities to partake of God's mercies, uh, he failed to do so. But nonetheless, God brought judgment and announced judgment, actually, against Syria and Israel, those who would be attacking King Ahaz and the, and the uh, nation of Judah. And he, say, he was saying of their attack against Judah back in chapter 7, just as a point of review, in verses 7 and 8, Thus saith the Lord, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken. Ephraim, of course, representing the ten, nation, uh, the ten tribal nations that made up the nation of uh, Israel, the northern kingdom. And it says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken so that it will not be a people. So it is here in our text that God gives a sign to explain more about how soon the defeat of Syria and Israel will come. Now, it is considered by many that this chapter may take place about a year after chapter 7. With that in mind, Isaiah receives a revelation from the Lord, summed up in four words that fixed themselves by divine inspiration in his mind, and that, by divine command, he is to make known publicly. This is something that he is to give out publicly. And what is the message? The message is, Maher Shalal Hashbaz. Literally it means, quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Quick to plunder, swift to spoil. Or to the spoil. The time for plunder and getting spoil is just around the corner. Now, let me just make clear that the word spoil here is not the same way that we use it when we talk about things food. But anyway, that's what it was. And so, it says, quick to the plunder, swift to the spoil. The time for plunder and getting spoil is just around the corner for them. And now, in order to publish this revelation, Isaiah must first take a scroll, possibly of metal, on which to engrave these words, as he, put, as he puts it, with a man's pen. Now, some modern translations will, will translate that as a common language, as it were, or common words, or a common message. One translation, one translation calls it common characters. To point out that the message was meant to be public and at a level any man could read and understand. So it was a message for everyone to receive. Those of you that have been keeping watch of, of the things that are going on in Israel and, and in Beirut, Lebanon and all, and, and the attacks that are having to be made by Israel against the Hezbollah in in uh, uh, in uh, Lebanon. And of course, they're, they're being criticized, you know, for going in there and killing women and children. And of course, if we really pay attention, we know that the Hezbollah uses people, children, women, as, as shields. And, and that is not the intention of the Israeli army to attack women and children. It is the intention of Hezbollah to do that to Israel. 
But all politics aside at this point in time, I'm just mentioning this because one of the things that Israel does before it makes an attack is that it sends uh, uh, leaflets, you know, that drops leaflets into those areas and it says, here's a message. We want it to be clear. We're coming. Please get out. As a matter of fact, I think I heard something uh, yesterday that that they were willing to pay some people in, in a certain area in Lebanon to go on vacation. The Israel, you know, the Israeli government, we'll pay you, go, get out of the way, because we want to get Hezbollah. <laughs> but it's a clear message. And this was a clear message. A man's pen, it says, is going to write this, because it's a man that has to hear it and, and listen and understand it at whatever, at whatever level, whatever level at whatever level there is for them to understand. Now, Isaiah, in fact, became the human pen. Isaiah was the human pen to be used by God, stressing the divine source of the prophecy. You see, the prophecy, and any good prophecy, is not of man, it is of God. God will use men as prophets to take out the message to the people, and this is what Isaiah is being used to do here. And then we note that the Lord appointed two witnesses so that the validity of this word would be established. We are told there in verse 2, I will take for myself faithful witnesses to record Uriah the priest and Zechariah the son of Zeberechiah. They would witness that Isaiah had written down the child's name before the child was conceived or born. And of course, the very fact that he uses two people here as witnesses uh, is substantiated really, or substantiated as it were, the scriptures that teach about two witnesses. In Deuteronomy 19, verse 15, for example, it says, One witness shall not rise against a man concerning any iniquity or any sin that he commits. By the mouth of two or, more, or three witnesses, the matter shall be established. So that, in keeping with the word of God, Isaiah has two witnesses. Now, we really don't know who this Zechariah is, the one that is mentioned here, but we may know about Uriah, and this is a different spelling than the Uriah that we'll, we'll, we'll talk about in just a moment in Second Kings. Uh, because of the two witnesses designated, Uriah the priest may well be the same person as the one who later builds an altar in a design from Damascus. Damascus being Syria. By the way, in 2 Kings 16, so that we can get a little bit of an understanding of this person, Uriah. It says, then Uriah, and notice the spelling is a little different, but it's the same person. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent from Damascus. So now we see that this is Uriah of the same time frame as Ahaz. So Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz uh, came back from Damascus. Now, this Uriah made the altar according to Ahaz's drawings, a copy of an altar to the gods of Damascus, the gods of Syria, who had beaten Judah but were defeated by Assyria. This is just another indication of, 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 the, of the wickedness of this one particular King Ahaz. And Ahaz had this new altar put in the temple to replace the altar that God had Solomon make. 
Now understand that Uriah had known that Isaiah's prophecy had been true. That Yahweh was indeed God. Yet he followed Ahaz in worshiping the gods of Damascus. Now there's a lesson here for us today. And that lesson is don't turn away from the true witnesses. Don't turn away from the true witnesses. It may be that you've heard about Jesus. It may be that you've begun to believe that indeed the right thing to do is to follow Jesus, but you don't do it. You know what's true. You know what's right. Both Uriah and Ahaz knew what was right, but chose not to follow in that path. And Uriah chose to follow Ahaz rather than the God of Israel. And yet, we find that he is at this point in time a witness to what Isaiah is being given by the Lord. But really, the lesson is don't turn your back on God. Don't turn your back on God. I don't want to get back into the political issues or political things that we deal with from day to day if we keep up with the news. Some people like to watch polls and they, they kind of try to make decisions by the polls that they read about or, or hear on the news. And you know that uh, at one given point in time, a majority of Americans had been backing President Bush, you know, in the war on terrorism and especially in the invasion of Iraq and all back a couple of years ago. And then you see what's happening now. And, of course, depending on who you, what news source you watch, you know, you see all of these things taking place. And then all of a sudden the, the numbers seem to be dropping. It's, it's kind of as, as if to say we're, you know, I thought we'd just go in, we'd take care of this thing, and then we'd get out, right? But we were told by the president himself, that's not going to happen that way. It's going to be a long battle because we, our enemy isn't just a nation. It's, it's, it's an ideology. It's a philosophy. It's all around us. But we're doing what we're doing so that what happened on 9-11 won't happen again. But people are fickle. And numbers drop. They hear things. You know, the winds blow one direction, then the people go one direction. The winds blow the other direction, then the people go the other direction. And it's easy today to turn our backs on what we once had said we would believe and, and consider. And while that might be easy in the world, let me just encourage you not to do so when it comes to the things that God has given to us from His Word. Because one thing is for sure, God is going to be faithful to what He says. And there's no reason then for us to sway in one direction or another as we see the winds blow in our time and in our day and age. Don't turn your back on God. In verse 3 of our text it says, Then I went to the prophetess, and she conceived and bore a son. And then the Lord said to me, Call his name Maher Shalal Hashbaz, 
And this here is referring to Isaiah's wife. Most commentators believe that this is what this prophetess is, or who this prophetess is. It's referring to Isaiah's wife who is called a prophet, as though it could be in the sense of simply being the wife of a prophet. Mr. Prophet, Mrs. Prophetess, I guess, you know. We would consider it that way. However, she clearly brought uh, forth uh, prophecy on at least one occasion. And that was the birthing and the naming of her son, Mahir Shalal Hashbaz. It was a word from God. So she certainly brought forth that prophecy. Literally brought forth the prophecy because she brought forth the son. Now, it needs to be understood that a prophet, prophetess, not uh, saying Isaiah and his wife, but just generally speaking, that a prophet or a prophetess is not necessarily someone who tells the future, but is more accurately someone who speaks for God. Because God knows the future, sometimes a prophet will speak of future things. Other times, a prophet will be speaking warnings from God. Other times, prophets speak actually words of encouragement. Take, for example, what Paul says about a prophet or the gift of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 3, when he says, But he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. And that is a tremendous definition of of what prophecy is in the sense of, of what a prophet is to do. He is to build up. He is to edify. And, and this, maybe I cl- need to clarify, this, is, this would be in the New Testament. But one who prophesies is one who edifies, which means he builds up. One who exhorts. In other words, exhortation is more than just warning. Exhortation is also encouragement. So a prophet is one who encourages. But then one aspect of a prophet that we don't often consider, especially when we look at Old Testament prophets, is that of comfort. A prophet is to comfort. One who prophesies is to give words of comfort to the people of God. And so, there are a few examples of prophetesses in the Scriptures. Women who called by God to be a prophetess. Actually, one that I find, uh, that I've listed that uh, wasn't a good prophetess, but uh, that goes to show that not all prophetesses are, are good ones. But there are a few good examples, and a couple of bad ones, but Miriam, for example. Miriam, the sister of Moses, was called a prophetess. Deborah, in the book of Judges, was a prophetess. 
The prophetess Huldah in the times of Josiah, a prophetess named Noadiah mentioned in Nehemiah. But we even find prophetesses mentioned in the New Testament. For example, the prophetess Anna. In Luke chapter 2, verse 36, we are told that there was one, Anna, a prophetess, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was of a great age and had lived with a husband seven years from her virginity, but she was a prophetess used by God in that particular case to bring comfort to the people of God. And also Philip's four daughters were called prophetesses. Acts chapter 21, verses 8 and 9, it says, On the next day we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. So it was a, a very important and prominent gift not only for men, but also for women. And so it may be that the wife of Isaiah had a prophetic ministry in her own right, but it may also be that she was simply the wife of a prophet and her prophecy was giving birth to Maher Shalal Hash Bas. But now the name becomes very important for us to understand as we look at verse 4. Because of the word for there in verse 4. For, beho- for before the child shall have knowledge to cry, my father and my mother, the riches of Damascus and the spoil of Samaria will be taken away before the king of Assyria. So through the birth and naming of this child, the Lord gives a time frame for the invasion of Assyria that will punish Syria and Israel. Now let me make clear, last week I mentioned that Syria and Assyria are not the same. Syria is in some translations called Aram, the land of the Arameans, and uh, that is yet at the same place where Syria is today. Lebanon to the northwest of Israel and uh, at the very north end of Israel and Syria at its uh, uh, northeast side. And so when we see that it is an invasion of the Assyrians, it will be against Syria and Israel. But before that child would reach even a year old, the northern kingdom of Israel, whose capital was Samaria... And the kingdom of Syria, whose capital was Damascus, notice those names mentioned in verse 4, would be plundered by a king named Tiglath-Pileser III of Assyria in 732 B.C. Now, this is a remarkable prophecy. Because that prophecy that is given by Isaiah a couple of years actually before it takes place because here again a child is going to be conceived a child is going to be born and before that child can say father and mother these things are going to happen it is interesting that to the very date that this attack of Assyria came upon Syria 
and upon Samaria. And history records that this particular king, Tiglath-Pileser III, was the one who led this invasion against these two nations. And so this prophecy was essentially the same as the near meaning of the Emmanuel sign of Isaiah chapter 7 that we looked at last time. In particular, the sign that God gives to Ahaz, which is that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. Would call his name Emmanuel. So the prophecy was essentially the same as that near meaning of the Emmanuel sign of Isaiah 7 verses 10 through 17. But this one was more public and, and it was plainer. It was more plain to everyone. That's why I waited to mention this today rather than try to explain all of that last time. How did it all fit in in the near uh, fulfillment? And this is why it's given to us by the Lord this way. So the first four verses of chapter 8 then deal with the clarification of that near fulfillment of what was to take place. That this was going to happen to Syria and Samaria or the northern kingdom by Assyria. But then as we go on in chapter 8 verse 5, it says, The Lord also spoke to me again, saying, Inasmuch as these people refused the waters of Shiloah that flow softly and rejoice in Rezin and in Remaliah's son. Remember, those are the two characters that represent Syria and, and, um, and Israel, or Ephraim. And I'm mentioning that now because it may be a little confusing in my explanation in just a moment, but I'll, I'll clarify. Now therefore... Behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty. Now the rivers being that very fact that Assyria is coming from the east, is talking about either one of the great rivers, the Euphrates or the Tigris. But most people believe it's the Euphrates because of the location from where the Assyrians come. So it says... That before, uh, therefore, behold, the Lord brings up over them the waters of the river, strong and mighty, the king of Assyria and all his glory. He will go up over all his channels and go over all his banks. So you consider then what? A flood that's coming. He will pass through Judah. Notice now Judah's mentioned here. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Like a bird of prey. This is the, the change of picture that, that uh, is given here in the prophecy. But notice, O Emmanuel. And then it says, Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand, for God is with us. What is that? Emmanuel. God is with us. What follows now, as in chapter 7, 
is the announcement of Judah's humiliation by the Assyrians as punishment for the unbelief of the people. Some think that the prophet uh, has Ephraim, or the ten tribes of Israel in view, in other words, the northern kingdoms. But this people that he's talking about can hardly be any other than Judah, and it is clearly mentioned in verse 8. Notice again in verse 8, He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck. And the stretching out of His wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Verse 6 could also be referring secondarily to Israel, certainly. But it must be remembered that Ahaz had called on Assyria for help instead of trusting in the Lord. And when you remember what we learned last time, the prophecy was from the Lord to Ahaz about Emmanuel. So that is the context here. We can't lose sight of the context and start mixing up the players in this scorecard here. So, Judah's unbelief is described as rejecting the gently flowing waters of Shiloh. Here's another clue. The waters of Shiloh, which refers to a reservoir that is probably the same as the one now called Birket Silwan. For us, it's something we find in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospel of John. It is for us the pool of Siloam. Shiloah, Siloam, Silwan, same place. And by the way, that's in the south, not in the north. John 9 verse 7 says, And he said to him, Jesus said to him, Go wash in the pool of Siloam, which is translated sent. So he went and washed and came back seen. So Jesus mentions the pool of Siloam. This is the waters of Shiloh. This pool is situated on the southeastern side of Jerusalem and gets its water from a small spring 1,090 feet to the north called the Gihon Spring. A subterranean water tunnel leading from the spring to the pool probably dates from the time of Hezekiah. As a matter of fact, in Second Chronicles 32, verse 30, it says, This same Hezekiah also stopped the water outlet of Upper Gihon and brought the water by tunnel to the west side of the city of David. Hezekiah prospered in all his works. So, there the Scriptures let us know that this Hezekiah Uh, made a a, a tunnel for this water to come from the upper Gihon to the south end of Jerusalem, down into the city of David. Now, in the days of Ahaz, the water probably ran through an open conduit of which traces have been found, actually, in, in archaeological finds. This must be one that Isaiah is referring to then. So through this channel, the prophet saw the gentle but sparse water. There wasn't a lot of water here. He saw the gentle but sparse water that the little spring poured into it uh, to take its, its sluggish course to the pool. Sluggish because the drop along the east side of Mount Zion 
is minimal. There's not a big drop. It's very, it's very minimal. So the water just kind of doesn't rush. It just kind of takes its time going down there. Compared with the mighty waters of the Euphrates, it was a pathetic stream. And that's the picture that God is trying to give us here. But still, these waters, these waters from the Gihon, these waters in this stream are more precious than those of the mighty river because the flow along Zion, the mountain of the temple and the palace, is what is important to God. That flow of that water for Jerusalem, for Mount Zion, is important to God. And the symbolism is amazing. The symbolism here is spectacular. Because just as Euphrates is a picture of Assyria as a world power, so the waters of Shiloah represent the kingdom of God. Which, be it in the manner of a symbol, is founded on Mount Zion at whose foot these waters flow. That kingdom is insignificant to the eyes of the flesh but far surpasses all earthly dominions in inner strength and value. Let me ask you a question. Why is Israel, and especially Jerusalem, so important today? Why is it so important today? It's a little city. I mean, there's a, you know, I mean, a good number of people in that whole area surrounding it, but the city of Jerusalem, the Temple Mount in particular... Is being fought over right now. There's, there's nations, you know, surrounding it. Nations that want it. Nations that want to take it for themselves. In particular, the Islamic nations. Who, by the way, don't really even have any kind of right to it because it wasn't in any of their writings. Muhammad never wrote about Jerusalem. But just because Israel wants it and it's part of their history, they want it now. They had to create a story. Muhammad riding a flying horse to get there. All of a sudden transported from where he was in Arabia to land right on this rock. And, you know, the, supposedly there's this imprint of, on the, one of those mosques that's on the Temple Mount. Crazy story. But Israel has right to it. It's theirs because God gave it to them. Why is it so important? So many wars taking place all over the world, but here is where the eyes of the world are being focused on even today. Insignificant to the minds of the world, but... Significant in a great way to the eyes and the heart of God. Psalm 48 verses 1 and 2 says, Great is the Lord, and greatly to be praised in the city of our God in His holy mountain. Beautiful in elevation, the joy of the whole earth is Mount Zion on the sides of the north, the city of the great King. It's important because it's His city. It's important because He is going to make it the joy of the whole earth. And so the prophet charges that this people, Judah, despises at this time the waters of Shiloah 
Shaloa representing the rule of God founded on Zion and describes this further by saying that it rejoices over Rezin and the son of Remaliah. And if this prophecy is directed to Judah, as we may assume for the reason that I've stated, this joy can be no other than delight over the humiliation of Syria and Ephraim inflicted by the Assyrians. Now this to me makes a lot more sense than to say that the waters of Shiloh, as that first verse that we read in verse 6 there, is speaking of the northern kingdom where the pool is not even close to. You see how much more it makes sense then that this is directed toward Judah? And that their joy is over-resident in the son of Remaliah being destroyed by the Assyrians. And here's another thing to add to that thought. This joy was a false joy, by the way. Because the people attributed the course of events to Assyria's friendship purchased by Ahaz. And did not see the hand of the Lord in it. They weren't seeing God's hand in what was going on. They were only seeing what Assyria came to do because Ahaz had made friendship with Assyria. So they prefer to trust the world power over Him whose throne is in Zion. I hope that makes sense to you. This isn't the northern kingdom that he's talking about. He's talking about Judah. And soon their joy would turn to dust. And that immense world power on which their hopes rested will turn against them. Turn against Judah. The Assyrian tidal wave would engulf the land and swallow everything. And yet we see that it is the land of Emmanuel to which this will happen. It is the land of Emmanuel. With sadness, the prophet recalls the boy whose birth and name he had presented as a pledge of the salvation of the true Israel. Going back to that great prophecy, verse 14 of chapter 7, Therefore the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Who was the prophecy to? Ahaz. Who was Ahaz, the king of Judah? The land of Emmanuel. But here, however, he seems to apply the name Emmanuel to another. Here in chapter 8, it is applied not to Maher Jalal Hashbaz. It is applied to the Messiah of Israel. It is applied to Yeshua. Because to him he could speak of Judah as your land. Look at verse 8 again. He will pass through Judah. He will overflow and pass over. He will reach up to the neck and the stretching out of his wings will fill the breadth of your land, O Emmanuel. Your land. Whose land? Messiah's land. And so Israel, I should say Isaiah, applied the name to him of whom by design of the spirit of prophecy... The first Emmanuel was the type. 
The first Emmanuel in chapter 7 was the type, the near fulfillment, just a type. That's why we don't have to apply the fact that a virgin, you know, that a, that a boy, would, a son would be born of a virgin. That would apply to Jesus. The fact that he was a type for them, for the prophecy to be fulfilled for Ahaz to see what was going to take place. But you see, it is the height of prophetic sorrows that the land of this Emmanuel shall have fallen prey to the claws of the Assyrian predator. The height of prophetic sorrow. But take note of a couple of things in verses 9 and 10. Look at verses 9 and 10. Be shattered, O you peoples, and be broken in pieces. Give ear, all of you from far countries. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Gird yourselves, but be broken in pieces. Sound like, sounds like a, a scratched record. Some of you don't know what a scratched record is. Take counsel together, but it will come to nothing. Speak the word, but it will not stand. For God is with us. You see, the idea here is, do your best do your best to get ready for battle, but you're going to be wiped out. Do your best to get ready for battle, but you're going to be wiped out. thought I repeated it because they repeated it. And in verse 10, to all of Judah's enemies, is this is what is said. They can plan as much as they want, but none of them will succeed in their plans to wipe out Jerusalem. For God is with us. You see, you have to be very clear that He's speaking both to those who are going to get ready for battle but aren't going to aren't going to win but at the same time he says what you are going to plan to do is not going to stand because God is with us God is on our side now, that does not mean that the Lord is not going to bring about judgment or chastisement or correction upon His people. That doesn't mean that. As a matter of fact, He has to send Israel yet again and again into captivity because of their rebelliousness against God. But eventually, and, and this we need to understand in light of what we're going to see in the big picture prophetically, that God is on the side of His people. God is on the side of His people, and God will be on the side of His people at the right time and at the right moment. I want you to consider, if you will, what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 31 and 32, when he says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but delivered Him up for us all, how shall He not with Him also freely give us all things? If God is for us, who can be against us? But I'd like to add another question. It isn't just so much if God is for us, but are we with God? Are we for God? Are we on God's side? We want God to be on our side. But are we on God's side? 
You see, that's the greater question here. God's going to be on the side of His people. The important thing is, are you on God's side? Are you one of His people? Are you on His side? Are you taking His side? Are you taking His Word? Are you taking His wisdom? Are you seeking to live your life by the wisdom that God gives you so that you can be on His side? So to demonstrate whose side God is on. And this is for us today. Some of you are still sitting there going, man, I don't understand the thing you said the last 40 minutes. That's all right. Just ask the Lord and let it soak in. But this now is for us right this very moment. To demonstrate whose side God is on, He saw. He saw our greatest need and did something about it. He saw that we had separated ourselves from Him with our own sin. And He did the only thing that could be done to remove that separation. What did He do? He sent His only Son, Jesus, to take on human flesh and then to die in our place, paying the price of the world's sins as they were heaped on Him at the cross. God the Father allowed His Son to do this for our sake. Is there any question... Just whose side God is on. If God is on our side, then what are we afraid of? If God is on our side, what are we afraid of? You see, we need to stop being theoretical Christians. We need to stop being Christians and live by theory and not by practice. A Christian is one who trusts in the Lord with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength. A Christian is one who does not lean upon his own understanding. So Christians have to be the ones who will stop living by theory and start living by practice. Practicing the knowledge that God is who He says He is. That God is faithful to the things that He says for us. That's what we need to overcome today as, as, as people who claim to be Christians. I'm not getting mad at anybody. I'm just trying to encourage you. God is on your side if you are a believer in Jesus Christ tonight. God is on your side. Be on His side. We've got nothing to fear in this life. The hard thing is that just like in Isaiah's time, sometimes it doesn't look as if God is on our side, right? In what we've read today up to this point, it doesn't look like He's on their side. So He's got to insert these little passages where He says, oh, but God's on our side. God's with us. Emmanuel. God is with us. How many times does God have to remind you that God is on your side? How many times does He have to keep bringing to your mind and to your heart, Hey, I'm right here. I haven't left you. You left me, but I'm still here. Come back to me. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to live with you. I want to live for you. 
I want to be your strength. I want you to fear me in the, in the, in the proper sense so that you don't fear anything in the world. If we fear God like the Bible teaches us to fear Him, we're not going to fear anything else. If we trust God with all of our heart, we don't have to fear anything else. It didn't appear that God was on their side, but He was. But listen to what God did for us. Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 8. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. And folks, there's not one of us who doesn't fit that description. That we were at one time without strength and that we were ungodly. Pure and simple. Each and every one of us was born in sin. And whether we've tried to live a good life or not, all of us will have to admit that we have been ungodly. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Is that not God being on your side? Is that not God being on your side? I've always loved Psalm 27, verse 1. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? He is my light. He is my salvation. He's my strength. What do I have to fear? So getting back now to this chapter... And I don't think we're going to be able to finish it tonight, but let me try to conclude what we have left. Get back to Isaiah chapter 8, verse 11. How can Judah prepare now for this invasion? The Lord is saying it's coming. The Lord is saying that it's not going to spare them. How can they prepare? Verse 11 says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with a strong hand, and instructed me that I should not walk in the way of this people, saying, do not say a conspiracy concerning all that this people call a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. The Lord of hosts, Him you shall hallow. Let Him be your fear. Let Him be your dread. He will be as a sanctuary, but a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense to both the houses of Israel as a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many among them shall stumble, they shall fall and be broken, be snared and taken. Let me just add here very quickly that Isaiah represents, along with his sons, the remnant of the true believer. A remnant of true believers. Remember that his first son that we met last time, Shar Yashub, all these names. But it talks about a remnant, doesn't it? His name speaks of a remnant will come. So what the Lord is saying to Isaiah here is don't think and do as everybody else does. Don't think and do as everybody else. That's good wisdom for Christians too. Don't think and do as the world does. Evidently, the majority of people in Isaiah's day were in favor of getting help from the Assyrians. 
Because it made sense to them. Let me, let me put it in a way that you can understand. Here was this guy who lives across town just waiting to be hired. And, and, and these people, the Judites, if you were, as it were, they had all this money in their piggy bank. So why not hire the big guy, the Assyrians, to beat up the local bullies, the Syrians, the, the Syrians and the Israelites? See, that's the picture here. But God says not to pay attention to what the crowd is wanting. And sometimes the crowd may be heading in the right direction, but sometimes they're not. And in this particular case, the people of Judah were not heading in the right direction because of Ahaz. We ought to be heading the, the way God wants us to head now, not, I should say, where people are pushing us to go. Not where people are telling us to go. He says, do not say a conspiracy, nor be afraid of their threats. Isaiah and all the people of Judah were tempted to give in to fear and to give in to panic, knowing the dangerous place that they were in. But at the time of this prophecy, the combined armies of Syria and, uh, and Israel had destroyed much of Judah. Their armies either encircled Jerusalem or were on their way. They planned to dispose King Ahaz and set their own man on the throne. We saw that last time. But with all of this going on, it would have been easy to let their minds and their hearts settle on conspiracies and threats. But God tells them not to. Don't settle on the threats. Don't settle on these conspiracy things going on. You know, that's a good word for Christians today. There's so many conspiracy theories out there, you know. Oh man, did you hear about, you know, the Trilateral Commission? And did you hear about this and about that? And like, you know, I mean, that's nice if you've got time to deal with all that. But you know what? I just want to live my life, head toward Jesus. Learn His Word. Stay on His Word. Oh, but didn't you know that this is happening and that's happening? And there is a secret convocation and all of this. Hey, God already knows. What do I have to worry about it? Did you know that the Antichrist is already walking on the earth? Probably, but I don't care. I'm looking for Jesus Christ. We're always looking for, you know, you know, the spooks under the rocks, you know. <gasps> so people go to these scary movies. Somebody was talking to me about scary movies, you know. Let's go scary movies. <laughs> Not me, man. I'll stay away from that stuff. I'm going to eat popcorn, man. I want to eat it. Enjoying it, you know. Not going, huh, you know, throwing popcorn all over the place. So it you know. No way, man. So instead of fearing conspiracies and threats, we need to fear God. Bottom line. Don't see yourself at the mercy of opposing armies. He's saying you're in God's hands. Worry about your place with the Lord instead of your enemies. In verse 13, it says, in effect, to sanctify the Lord of hosts and let Him be your fear. God is to be the sole one whom we regard as worthy of worship, whom we regard as worthy to be honored, to be obeyed, and to bow down to. There is a very real sense in which we ought to have a healthy fear of God. Because Jesus said in Matthew 10, verse 28, And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. But rather fear Him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. That's a pretty strong warning. I think that's a good one because it comes from Jesus. And so the king, Ahaz, had been looking around for help. 
And when he found the Assyrians, he found what he thought were the baddest dudes in town. To him, they were the ones to be feared, and he wanted to be on the winning team. Everybody wants to be on the winning team. But you know what? All we have to do is to be on the side of one, Jesus Christ. And whether the world follows you or not, that's the winning team. Because he already won. He won the victory. He won the battle. The battle is over. The cross has been endured. The blood of Christ has been shed. And death lost when Jesus rose from the dead. That's the winning team. Ahaz, he picked the wrong team. But there was someone far bigger than Assyria. It was the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In 1 Peter chapter 3, and we're almost done here, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 13. I want to read this to you. It says, and following, And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled. Where did that come from? What we're reading here today. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts, and always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and fear. You know, I don't know that I've ever had a good grasp of the beginning of verse 15, where it says, and he who is... I should say, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. You know, set apart the Lord in your hearts. It's hard to get a full grasp of that, that particular thought. But it's all connected with the previous verses, so you've got to read a little bit ahead, as we did in verse 13. Why? Because God is watching, number one. Number two, God will take care of us. God is watching, but God will take care of us. We don't need to be afraid of people who want us or want to do us uh, or want us to do the wrong thing. Make sure that God and God alone is the one that we fear, the one that we respect, the one that we follow. Let me add one more verse, verse 16, having a good conscience, that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. We should be ready to tell people that the reason that we behave the way we do is because we are followers of Jesus and we're looking to His reward and looking to His hope. Ready to give a defense. We cannot unless we sanctify, set God apart in our hearts. Well, this has been a Quite an interesting journey through this chapter. We're going to finish it next time. And hopefully it will become even more clear as we go on. But I hope that some of the lessons, the life lessons that we can learn from this, will be that we have nothing to fear if we fear God. We have nothing to be afraid of if we have surrendered ourselves to Jesus Christ. And if you'll take the time to read a little bit even before what we just read in 1 Peter chapter 3, you find a section there that has to do 
with humility. It has to do with the character of our lives before the world. Let me just find it real quickly and I'll share it with you before we close. Beginning over in verse 8, it says, Finally, be, uh, This is 1 Peter 3, verse 8, Finally, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another. Love as brothers, be tender-hearted, be courteous, not returning evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, blessing, knowing that you were called to this, that you may inherit a blessing. He, for he who would love life and see good days, let him refrain his tongue from evil his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him speak peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And who is he who will harm you if you become followers of what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. Do not be afraid of their threats or be troubled. And so we don't have to fear. But we do need to walk humbly before our God. And so with all that was said tonight, I hope that you would just remember one thing. God is going to set straight everything in the scriptures. When men oppose God, God will have his judgment for them. When those who are supposed to be believers in God will turn away from God, God will have his word for them. But when God sees the heart of a people who love him and desire him above everything else, God will have His hand upon them. And my prayer is that He has His hand upon you. Shall we pray? Lord, we don't want to be far from You or, or far from that hand that guards us and protects us and keeps us. Lord, we want to be in the hand that holds us and protects us and keeps us from ever falling away. Having the assurance, Lord, that you are a God that not only saves but keeps and preserves and defends. For if you are for us, who can be against us? Father, we thank you for that tonight. 